or uh, open it up in your smartphones, or uh, if you don't have a Bible uh, or a Bible app on your phone, we'll have the scripture up here on the screen uh, for us this morning as we walk through um, this uh, text this morning. We have been in the book of Revelation for a few weeks uh, now, and uh, we're excited to uh, continue in this sermon series, helping us understand uh, what it is that God is trying to communicate in a book that is often misused, misrepresented, and a little bit scary, frankly. Uh, and how do we understand this, uh, and what does it mean that, that Jesus is making all things new? Um, so that's, that's where we're at this morning, and we're going to be in chapter 2 again this morning. Uh, well, in the, in the U.S., uh, it's been reported in a couple of different studies, but uh, approximately 52%, you know, statistics, right? They're hard. But approximately 52% of all car accidents occur within a five-mile radius of your home. And 69% of all collisions happen within a 10-mile radius of your, from your home. The implication is that shorter trips uh, are among the highest places for car accidents. The question is, why is that? Why would that be the case? Well, I think often it happens because uh, within the first few minutes of getting in your car, uh, you are setting things up, uh, you might be uh, very familiar with where you're at and so might not be paying attention. Uh, you might be prone to just be a little bit careless. You might be a little overconfident and a little careless about that, and that might be the case. Now, imagine that in comparison to if you're driving through a very hard rainstorm. I remember one time I was driving on the highway. It was raining really, really hard, and I was in a construction zone and being passed by a semi. I was very secure on that steering wheel and paying a lot of attention. Now, the storm could have killed me, but my carelessness probably wouldn't have. I wasn't going to answer a text message or change the radio or do anything because it was like it needs my intense focus to remain on this. But when those things aren't happening, when there isn't threats or difficulty, it can be easy to become familiar and careless. There's something about the pressure of a near-death experience uh, that brings us into focus. Well, I believe that persecution and suffering on the church has a similar effect. Suffering causes us to actually focus in on what's most important. But I wonder... If the situation for us in the American church here is closer to that of car accidents close to home, that we don't face the same level of potential dangers or suffering that our brothers and sisters around the world face, and so it can be easy to be careless. It can be easy to not stay ready, to lose focus. It can be easy to not stay ready. Well, this morning, we're going to look at one of these letters that we've been talking about, the second of the letters that, John, uh, that Jesus is giving through John to the seven letters or the seven churches that uh, the whole book of Revelation is invited to. And this one in particular focuses in on the question, will you be ready? Uh, it's a letter to the church in Smyrna. And in Smyrna, they were experiencing persecution. And the question is, will they remain ready? And our question 
this morning is, okay, if we're not experiencing persecution like that the Christians in Smyrna were experiencing, well, first of all, is this relevant to us? And secondly, how do we stay ready to be faithful to Jesus no matter what? So that's our question for this morning. Will we stay ready? All right, so starting in Revelation 2, just 8 through 11 this morning. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Smyrna. This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Remember, I said the structure of these letters is he's going to pick up a piece of the vision that we saw of Jesus in chapter 1, pick up this little piece of that vision that applies to this, and then he's going to commend them in some way and challenge them in some way and finish with a promise. So that, this takes the same form. This is one of the pieces of the vision. The first and the last who is dead but is now alive. I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. The devil will throw some of you into prison to test you. You will suffer for 10 days. But if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. All right. Well, what's going on here in this situation that, that Jesus is addressing here in Smyrna? It's helpful to understand a little bit about the context of this so that we can understand some of the pieces of this uh, particular part of the book. So Smyrna was a port city. Uh, it's one of the cities in uh, Asia Minor where, so this is a real historical place where there's a real church that John is saying, hey, Jesus is instructing you about this thing. And in Smyrna, there was a thriving imperial cult. And in that, what that means, right, is that Caesar demanded worship. Caesar demanded worship and you would come and you would offer sacrifices to Caesar as emperor. But not just as emperor, but as God. He was considered to be divine. And so you had to offer sacrifices to the emperor as though he is divine. And they worshiped the emperor. This is the imperial cult that was existing throughout the Roman Empire. And Smyrna has a thriving imperial cult. Now, when Rome took over, what they did with the Jewish nation in particular is that they allowed the Jewish nation often to uh, actually go through the sacrifice process without it being a sign of worship, but simply a sign of honor. So they said to the Jewish nation, you can come, you can do the same sacrifice that other people do, but it's not worship as a God, you're just honoring a ruler. And so you're able to do that and not violate what you think is a violation. Now, early on for the church, the church was kind of lumped in. If you remember when we walked through the book of Acts, the early church was lumped in with the Jewish nation, right? Because this was a sect of Judaism for a lot of the Roman authorities. They saw this as just simply a sect of Judaism, which is why oftentimes when there was problems between the Jewish people in a various city and Paul or anyone else who's preaching the gospel, uh, the Roman authorities are like, hey, you guys deal with this. This isn't our thing. You guys have to deal with this thing because this is a, a religious law thing. You guys got to figure this out. You're just this thing. 
Well, increasingly, as the church grew, and remember, uh, Revelation is written at the end of the first century, and so increasingly, as the church grew, it was seen as distinct from Judaism. And as the church was seen as distinct from Judaism, they began, the Roman authorities began to put on different requirements upon Christians. And actually, we have some evidence that some within the Jewish nation uh, actually uh, sort of colluded with uh, Roman authorities to get Christians in trouble for not submitting to the sacrifices uh, and, and put economic pressure on the Christians. And so it's likely that some Jews in Smyrna were alerting authorities or getting uh, together with economic forces to shut Christians out. Now, this is a very specific place, and uh, it's worth mentioning here, throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of Christianity, there have been uh, anti-Semitic uh, 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 tendencies within different places in the church. So when, we, when John here, or where, when Jesus says through John here that their synagogue is of Satan, he's not talking about uh, the reality of like, it's okay to hate Jewish people. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is these specific uh, Jewish folks within this city are oppressing the church. He's speaking to a specific situation. So this isn't licensed uh, to, to uh, endorse any sort of hate uh, throughout uh, the world and, and for the Jewish people. Certainly Paul has very real concern for his brothers and sisters of the Jewish nation that he wants to trust in Jesus. Uh, he has very real concern. And even in Romans, right, he says, I would even give of my own soul if they could be saved, which ought to be our response uh, to those who uh, have the promises of God uh, throughout the Old Testament and yet are rejecting Jesus. We want to share Jesus with those folks. Uh, and so it's not a, not a place to hate. But there is a very real thing going on in Smyrna in which the, the Christians are being marginalized and they are being persecuted. And they are being shut out from economic forces in other places, which is why Jesus says, I know your poverty, I know your suffering. But Jesus encourages them. He says, you have remained faithful. And he encourages them by saying, I want you to recognize that though you are poor, you are rich. And I don't want you to be afraid. Don't be afraid because I am present with you. And then he encourages them to be faithful during the test, right? He says, some of you are going to get thrown into prison for 10 days. Now, again, this is a place, whenever you see a number in the book of Revelation, you should ask, what does this refer to? Because unless I am forced by the text to say this is a literal 10 days, I should assume it's a symbolic reference of some kind because it's apocalyptic literature. So if I see a number, I got to think, okay, what is that number? And one of the first things to do is to say, hey, does that number show up anywhere else? Well, actually, remember that Revelation alludes to the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. And the book of Daniel is the place in which it alludes to the uh, Old Testament the most. And if you remember in Daniel, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, Daniel, when he is first brought into the king's court to be trained, he, is, he refuses to submit to the, uh, to the food regimen because the food has been sacrificed to idols. So he says, no, I'm not going to do that. And the leader that's in charge of getting these folks ready to serve in the king's court says, wait a second, 
I'm going to get beheaded because you're going to be malnourished, and they're going to know that I'm not forcing you to eat this food, so I'm going to get beheaded. And Daniel says, no, test us for 10 days. Let us, in, let us have this other diet for 10 days and test us and see what happens. And so it's pretty clear that this is, given within the context of what's going on, that this is a reference to this 10-day testing period. So it's not a reference to, hey, specifically you and Smyrna, some of you are going to get tossed into prison for only 10 days, so it's fine. What it is is to say, you're going to be tested like Daniel was tested. Will you remain faithful to the test? Your testing might be that you're going to be thrown into prison. Daniel's testing was different, but it is this idea of a period of time in which you're going to be tested. So it's not necessarily a specific promise that you're only going to be thrown into prison for 10 days. But this is going to come up later as we talk about how we understand why or how we are to respond to these things. We can learn a lot from how Daniel and his friends respond to things and then how Jesus is using that to encourage the church in Smyrna. Finally, he says, look forward to the crown of life. I will give you the crown of life. To those that remain faithful, I will give the crown of life. So, what about us? How do we apply any of this to our situation? How do we stay ready? Well, I think we have a couple of options. One is that we can look for persecution everywhere. This is one option that Christians take that I think is not helpful. We can invent or look for persecution anywhere. Anytime we read of persecution, we can say like, oh, this person was mean to me. I am being persecuted for my faith. Well, maybe, or maybe they're just a mean person, and maybe you're kind of a jerk. That could be it, too. Like, there, there could be other things going on here. It might not be that you're being persecuted because of your faith. Uh, it could be that you say, well, I don't get to do this thing or whatever it is. Like, I, it's hard, and people might think I'm weird or old-fashioned for believing certain things. Like, well, that's not persecution. And it minimizes our brothers and sisters who are facing very real persecution throughout the globe. There are people who have to give their life to follow Jesus in other places in the world that are being drugged into prison or being killed for their faith, for sharing their faith, where it's illegal for them to share their faith with another person, where it's illegal for them to sit and read their Bible in public, where there are very real difficulties throughout the globe. So we don't want to minimize that because Smyrna is facing something much more akin to that than what we might face. Now, there are very real hard ways of being a Christian in our day and age. Absolutely not saying that. But I don't think it's helpful for us to invent ways in which we believe ourselves to be persecuted uh, because it minimizes those things. And it minimizes the history of real persecution in our country, in our past, uh, particularly when we look at uh, the way in which uh, the historic black church has remained faithful in the midst of very real suffering and persecution in this land. We can learn a lot from them in this Uh, in what it means to stay ready, but it minimizes all of those experiences of suffering if we sort of invent persecution where it doesn't exist. The other way we can stay ready is to say, let's detach ourselves from the things of the world that persecution might take from us. Let's detach ourselves, uh, at least in our hearts. Let's 
lay down idols that might be taken away if persecution were to come. So let's detach our hearts from wealth, from power, from influence, from safety. Well, I think that's wise, but I think detaching ourselves from those things is actually really difficult. And detaching ourselves from those things, detachment alone will not do it. Daniel, when he was, uh, remember if Daniel is one of our tests here, Daniel, when he was there, uh, the, the nation of Israel was in Babylon. They were in exile. They were in enemy land. And what did God instruct them to do? To stay away from anyone else? To, to detach themselves completely? No, Daniel is literally in the king's court. He's one of the highest officials in the land by the end. And also, God instructs through Jeremiah, he says, plant gardens, get married, give your children in marriage, live life in this place, you're going to be here a while, and seek the good of the city that you are in. So we can't just simply say, and that was in Babylon, as they were taken from their homeland as exiles. So, like, that's enemy territory in which they were taken from their homeland into enemy territory. And God said, you should be a blessing to your neighbors who are literally your enemies. So if that's the instruction for them, we also ought to do that. Remember, the whole point of Revelation is to say, you're in Babylon. You're in Babylon. So you need to be like Daniel in Babylon and remain faithful in the test but that means seeking the blessing of those around you, seeking their good, seeking their prosperity and health and thriving. Well, how do I do that if I am constantly worried about detaching myself from these things? This is a tricky thing. This is not easy. This is a tricky thing, which is why I don't think attach, detachment alone will do enough. We actually need to attach our hearts to something greater. The reality is that our hearts will worship something no matter what. So if we focus all of our energy on detaching our hearts from the worship of wealth or power or influence or any of these things that persecution might take away, our hearts will just simply worship something else. We'll find something else in this culture to worship. We'll find some other way to be satisfied because our hearts are made to worship. We actually, not only do we need to figure out how to detach ourselves, actually we need to understand that the best way to detach our hearts from the things of this world is to attach them to King Jesus. The best way to stay ready is to not give our hearts to the things of the world that any persecution might take from us or tempt us to compromise to keep. And the best way to not give our hearts to the things of this world is to give our hearts fully to King Jesus. In other words, the best way to detach ourselves from the things of the world that persecution might take from us is spending our energy, not detaching ourselves from the world, but spend our energy attaching ourselves to King Jesus. Uh, there's a, a sermon that I have quoted probably many times here uh, it's one of my favorites. It's probably w one of the most influential uh, short things uh, that God has used in my life to change so much of how I think about what it means to follow Jesus. 
It's a sermon by a guy named Thomas Chalmers called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Uh, You can find this online. It's free online. Uh, It's like old English. It's kind of hard to read, so I'm going to try and translate some pieces of it to you. But he says this. In a word, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great object is to fashion it in positive love to another, then it is not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away with and all things are to become new. What he's saying is, if you, if your heart is only going to be satisfied in the Lord if we attach it to something far greater, then our job is not to explain that the things of the world are worthless. Our job is to explain that Jesus is majestic. That Jesus is majestic. He says this later on. He says, We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our hearts than to keep our hearts the love of, keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. What he's saying is, if you want to be ready, if you want to be ready to walk into the world, and no matter what comes, no matter what the world throws at you, no matter what the world tries to take away from you, if you are to be in a situation like they are at in Smyrna and they say, no, you can't have that job because you're a Christian. No, you can't do this thing. No, you're going to have to remain poor because you're a Christian. You can't move up in the social ladder because you're a Christian. You can't, like, if, if you're going to be in that situation someday, and maybe you will be, if that's the case, if you're going to stay ready to be faithful to King Jesus in the midst of that moment, it's not to tell you, hey, all of the things that the world is going to give you, the wealth that you are losing, any of those things, it's all worthless. That's not the way to convince you to stay ready. It's to tell you that Jesus is far better. That Jesus is actually far more worthy of your love and affection. The way for us to stay ready is not to focus our attention and energy on the negative, pushing things away, but on the positive, embracing Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus says to them, right? He says, I know about your suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. What does he mean, you are rich? Well, what does the world offer that could be taken away in persecution? Wealth. Security, life, comfort, power, intimacy, entertainment. All of these things are good things. It would be useless for me to try and convince you that those are worthless. Because you're going to leave here and engage in all of those things and be like, well, that was dumb. Right? Like, I can't convince you that those things are worthless because in and of themselves, they're not worthless. God didn't create you as a soul disembodied who only worships Jesus and doesn't experience life in any other way. He created you as an embodied person who experiences the created world. Those things are good. Losing them would be bad. That makes sense. So 
You see why it's difficult to remain faithful to Jesus if someone says you can't have those unless you denounce Jesus. You can't have that unless you denounce Jesus. But this thing is good. God created it. I want that thing. I actually need some of those things to function as a human. Well, what do I do? How are you going to maintain faithfulness like Daniel in the midst of the test? Well, it's not by telling you, hey, those things are worthless. Don't worry about it. Those things are worthless. That doesn't work. What I have to tell you is look what you already have in Jesus. Look what you already have in Jesus. So that when you compare those things, which are good, to Jesus, you know that Jesus is far better. And the only way you're going to stay ready is if you know that Jesus is far better. And we've got to spend time thinking how Jesus is far better. Well, let's compare it. Wealth. The world. You can manage a lot of wealth. You can build up a lot of wealth. You can do all those things. Do you know what you get as a Christian? You inherit the globe. Like when Jesus returns, that's what he's talking about, right? When I come back, we're not going to be like, what I, this is why I wanted to preach through the book of Revelation. One of the things I love about the book of Revelation is it, it sort of blows up our thoughts about heaven. Most of us have grown up with thoughts of heaven that are like, hey, yeah, we'll sing to Jesus and we'll float on clouds like angels. That sounds boring. Maybe for like 10 minutes that would be fun. But that sounds boring because I really like hanging out with people and building things and riding roller coasters and eating food. Like that sounds, like I like laughing and being around people and all these. You know that Revelation says that Jesus is coming to make all things new and every place in which the curse is found will be reversed and there will be a new heavens and a new earth. You will be resurrected, returned to this body in resurrected form, glorified, but embodied, and the whole earth is yours. Everything, it's all yours. What can the wealth of this world in the midst of the curse compare to inheriting the earth. What can it compare? This momentary suffering, right? He says, you're going to be thrown in prison for 10 days. That's a short period of time. Part of the reason why he's alluding to this is to alert you to Daniel. And part of it is to tell you it's a short period of time. In comparison to the eternal life that you will have in the new heavens and new earth, you get the whole earth. What does the wealth of the world compare? Security. You're, if, if you're face persecution, you're going to lose security. Now, I don't know about you, but when I feel insecure, when I feel unsafe, when I feel out of control in various places, it really bothers me. I like to be in control. I like to know that I can keep my family safe. I like to know that I can do these things, right? Like, I like my security cameras. I like all this stuff. I like that I could check right now, make sure no one's messing with my stuff. On my phone, like I like that stuff. I don't like not having security. But even that, what is it actually secure? Like, 
I could just uh, not pay attention on my way home and have a car accident and lose it all. Right? Like, it's fleeting. What does Jesus promise them? He says, to those who remain faithful, uh, but if you remain faithful, even when facing death, I will give you the crown of life. In 11, he says, whoever is victorious will not be harmed by the second death. The second death refers to the final judgment. We'll get to that at the end of this uh, book when we're, when we're in that section of Revelation. But the second death refers to judgment, ultimate judgment, in which hell itself, Satan, and all those who aren't connected to King Jesus because of their sin will be thrown into the second death. Those who remain faithful to Jesus, those who are tied to King Jesus, cannot be touched by the second death. Talk about security. The first death might be terrifying and miserable, but it has nothing in comparison to the second death. And if you are in Christ, that second death will not touch you because your sin has been paid for You are righteous before God because of King Jesus. The security that you have in Christ is greater than any security you could have in the world. Life. The crown of life awaits us. Our very life will be revealed when Jesus is revealed. Our life may be taken in this world, but we get a crown of life given to us if we remain faithful to Jesus. That's what he promises. This is far better. Comfort. Suffering and persecution will take away comfort. Just the normal suffering of living in a broken and fallen world takes away comfort. You know what is repeated several times throughout the book of Revelation? That in the end, when we are resurrected, God himself will wipe away every tear from your eye. God himself will comfort you by wiping away every tear from your eye. This is comfort. God will be near to you. Power. Power. We will judge the earth alongside King Jesus. You know that we will sit on thrones to judge the earth alongside King Jesus. Right? We we looked at this a few weeks ago where John and James are like, hey, uh, give us some thrones, Jesus. And he's like, yeah, that's not my place. But if we remain faithful, we will be in charge alongside King Jesus in the new heavens and new earth. What power can we exert here in this place that comes close to the power to sit alongside King Jesus in a resurrected globe? This is far better. Intimacy. Jesus is near. He says, I am here, right? He says, uh, but you are rich. I know, I see your suffering. And if you remain faithful, I will give you the crown of life. Remember, he's speaking in the midst of the seven lampstands, in the midst of the churches. He is close. Jesus is near. Entertainment and enjoyment. It's a thing that the world offers and persecution can take away because you kind of get stripped away of everything that's joyful in life. That's why it's a bad thing. Jesus, though, 
has all wisdom, glory, and honor. He is an inexhaustible joy. If you try to get to the depths of how glorious Jesus is, you will never get there. It's like trying to discover the ends of the universe. That's how glorious King Jesus is. It's like trying to explore the depths of the ocean. There's always more to find. The more you walk with Jesus, the more you're going to find that he is glorious, that he has all wisdom and power and honor and praise. That he is worthy of all worship. That he is glorious beyond imagination. Now, the reason that we so often feel like we don't know, uh, know these things is because we don't spend extended, deep time thinking about King Jesus in this way. One of the ways that we can actually begin to be ready to be faithful to Jesus is to actually spend time with King Jesus. When Paul says, set your minds on the things of Christ, do we have anything that we can think about? Like what comes to mind when he says, set your minds on Christ? If we don't have anything to think about, it's probably because we're not spending time deeply with Jesus. Because he's inexhaustible. There are things that we can think about, about the depths of who he is in his wisdom and majesty, his character, his power, his glory, his grace, his mercy. All of these things we can think deeply about. And how was all of that that we've talked about, the, the, the things that we have in Jesus, how was all of that secured? How did Jesus secure all of those things for us? Well, Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Now, he's clearly not speaking about material wealth, because Jesus, though he does own all things, his richness and glory is in the throne room of heaven seated at the right hand of God, and Jesus left all that behind to become poor, physically, but also spiritually, to become poor, to suffer, and to die on a cross so that you could become rich in Christ. Not promising material wealth, that's not what this is about, but promising that you now participate in the glory of the heavens. You are invited into the throne room of grace, You're invited into the very presence of God. You are rich. You are rich. Which is why Jesus says to them, don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Don't be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Because what has he already said at the very beginning? This is the message from the one who is the first and the last, who was dead but is now alive. Don't be afraid because I am the first and the last. That means I'm in charge of the entire universe and all of human history. So wait a second. I'm about to experience suffering or persecution or I might experience suffering or persecution. How can I remain faithful? Well, I can know that King Jesus already knows what's going to happen. He's the first and the last. He knows all things. And he's allowing this for my good, ultimately, to test my faith, to draw me to himself, to bring himself glory and honor, to make all things new. 
Jesus is the one who is the first and the last before all things. But he's not the first and the last before all things, ruler of the universe who sits back and says, therefore, trust me, because I am in charge of all things. No, he is the one who was dead and is now alive. He's not only the ruler of all things, he entered into human history and faced the very suffering that they may face, that you may face, that I may face. He faced it himself. And what happened when Jesus faced it? He was crucified, but he is no longer crucified. He is alive and will remain alive for all eternity in this embodied form. He laid aside his riches of glory to suffer and die for you and I and is now alive. What can we be afraid of? Now, it's not because there aren't scary things out there. There are scary things out there, absolutely. There are terrifying things. It's because Jesus is glorious. Because Jesus was dead and is now alive. This is why we don't have to be afraid. Be faithful during any test. This faithfulness, this always attaching ourselves to Jesus, actually helps us live like Daniel and the exiles in Babylon in loving our neighbor well and suffering well, not forcing, uh, demanding our rights, forcing our way through things and violently taking the things that we need because we already have everything in Christ. You see, that's why this book is so important because the point of this book is to say, guys, we can love our neighbors even when they hate us. You can love your enemies even when they take things from you, even when they hate you, because you know what? They can't touch anything of value. They can't touch Jesus. They can't take that from you. They can't bring the second death upon you. They can't remove, they can't crucify Jesus again. He's alive. He's in charge. He rules all. You are 100% secure. So you got two options then. If you're 100% secure, you can sit back and do nothing and just wait. Or you can go and serve and suffer and invite everyone else to come into this security. You're free to love your neighbor. You're free to be faithful and to look forward to this crown of life that he will give us. You know, I referenced this passage earlier, but in Colossians, Paul says, Since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. For you have died to this life and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. And with Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. I love this passage. This is crazy. You guys have no idea what your life will look like, what your neighbor will look like. All of you will be resurrected. Jesus, when he returns, he will resurrect you into glory, into glory. And you, your very life will really show up. You, without the curse 
humanity without the curse, that is going to be glorious. We are all made in God's image. God does good work. He doesn't make terrible things. We've been broken and fallen because of our sin, and that will be removed. How glorious will we be? This is incredible. We will be just incredibly glorious. The best experience that you have with brothers and sisters in Christ pales in comparison to the least experience we will have there. Because Jesus, our life will really show up when Jesus shows up. That's what this passage is saying to us. So if that's the case, live in this world as though the things that are in this world aren't really yours because you're waiting for another one. Right? This is exactly the the, uh, instructions that Paul gives to the Corinthians. He says, but let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. Remember, that language of very short or end days or end times, any of those things, is the same as the book of Revelation saying all of the book of Revelation and end times, all of those things is from Jesus' first coming between that and his second coming. That's what that means. The time is very short. So it doesn't mean short as in like two years or whatever, right? It means there's nothing else that has to happen in redemptive history for Jesus to return. The last thing that's going to happen is Jesus comes back, new heavens, new earth. We're at the very last day. We're right there. Now, the church has been there for 2,000 years. We're waiting. We're in patience. 2,000 years feels like a really long time. Not to the Lord. Not to the Lord, right? 1,000 days feels like a day. So it's been two days. That's not a very long time. It's a short time. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of the world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. Paul is not saying don't get married. This is actually in the context of answering questions for the Corinthians about getting married. He's not saying don't live life. He's saying, live like the exiles did in Babylon. Do those things, but remember, this isn't the end. Live as though that's not the case, because this isn't it. This is just the pregame. This is the pregame. We're waiting for the real thing. It's coming. The real thing is coming. We can be faithful and seek the good of those around us by by not making this our ultimate home which actually means you can suffer and remain faithful because you have a reward coming. You have a reward coming. You know, I think oftentimes Christians feel really like strange about thinking about the reward that's coming and they're like, no, 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 I I, I love and suffer for my neighbor just because that's the right thing to do. Well, that's not how your heart works. So you could try that, but it's not gonna work. Your heart, wants things so focus on your reward what's your reward king jesus it's a good thing it's a good thing to focus on your reward you get king jesus you get the earth you get to be with brothers and sisters for all eternity all of those things that's really good you know why you focus on that because then when the time is short and the suffering is real you can endure it 
and remain faithful. And when your enemy, who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have that reward that he's looking forward to, you can suffer and invite them in love to participate in the same reward because it wasn't yours to give away. You can then suffer. And people are going to ask you, if you live like that, you know what people are going to ask you? Same thing Peter tells you that's going to be asked. If you live like that, like this isn't your home, and, and live in such a way, and you treat your stuff in such a way, and you love your neighbor in such a way, and you suffer in such a way that you show this isn't my home, people are going to say, what are you hoping in? Because I have all this other stuff. You seem to not be attached to that stuff. And, and this stuff doesn't really scratch the itch of my heart. It doesn't really do it. What, what is it? You get to tell them about King Jesus and invite them to be a part of this thing. You really want to be a part of this epic thing that Jesus is doing at the end of the days means we can suffer just like Jesus. Just like the book of Hebrews says. So also Jesus suffered and died outside the city gates to make his people holy by means of his own blood. So let us go to him outside the camp and bear the disgrace he bore. For this world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a home yet to come. This world is not our permanent home. We are looking forward to a better one. The earth is fading don't attach yourself to it. Attach yourself to King Jesus because that permanent home is coming. And if you're united with King Jesus in his suffering now, you'll be united with King Jesus in his glory then. So to stay ready, to stay ready no matter what may come, whether the suffering and the persecution is small or whether it is huge, no matter what, we can stay ready by being united to King Jesus and looking to the first and the last, the one who died but is now alive because he will welcome us into paradise and set the crown of life on our head. This is the good news. Let's rejoice in it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. For in your love, you sent Christ to die for us. God, would you be near to us now? Jesus, we are weak. We are fickle. We so easily get entangled with the things of this world. So God, rather than beating us up or making ourselves beat ourselves up for doing that, God, would you just showcase who you are to us? Just open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart. Let us see in faith to who you are, King Jesus. Let us just see you. Let us know you. Jesus, come near to us that we may know you so that we would suffer well, love well, and go out in this world and represent you and invite others to be a part of this kingdom because you are glorious and worthy of it all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.